So obviously this is a very significant Sunday for us as a church, Graduation Sunday. I've got to be a part of the graduations. That's, that's exciting. And uh, we are talking about building to build lives. Why are we building? We are building to build lives. And the question remains, though, is like, what does a well-lived life really look like? If we're building to build lives, what does a life look like that is really making the most of the opportunities that God gives? And I think you're going to find that there are three commitments that every well-lived life is going to experience and pursue. And this morning, I just would like to speak not only to graduates, but really to all of us. What does a well-lived life look like? What are the commitments that they share? Well, you're going to find it if you open your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And the first thing I'd like to say, if you're going to live a well-lived life, you have to have a clear identity. You need to know who you are. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, who we are shapes how we live. And so what he wants us to know is this is our identity. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. You have been chosen of God. It conveys a unique status that God has literally selected you so that you will experience his love, forgiveness, hope, joy, peace. And so he says you have been chosen of God and you are also, if you look at your identity, what? Holy. That word holy means to be set apart, to be set apart for God and for his purposes. And so he says, you are holy. You've been set apart for God. It's kind of like at a wedding. And we got a groom, and he's standing up there, and he's all pretty nervous. And then you got the bride, and she's as beautiful as she can be. And they are, they are committing themselves exclusively for life. One husband, one wife, together for life. And you need to know that that's the same idea behind being identified in Christ. You once were out there running wild and doing your own program, a very self-centered individual. I speak from personal experience. And God literally brings you into relationship with himself. You are chosen. You're holy. He's now set you apart to be for God. And notice what else when he talks about identity. We're chosen of God. We're holy and beloved. We are set apart for his special love. People thrive when they know that they are unconditionally loved. You, you see it. If someone knows they're unconditionally loved, they just have a tendency to blossom. And that's what God wants us to know about our identity. We're chosen. We're holy. We're dearly loved. And yet, this is so fundamental to the identity of the Christian, but this identity is always under the attack. We live in a culture that says it's about how pretty you are, how much money you make, your accomplishments, your accolades, where you live. It's all about the other things, and it's all about a me-centered life. And what God wants you to know is that your identity is really fully wrapped up into him. And if you're going to live a, a well-lived life, you need to have a clear sense of your identity. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received on living out your, a clear identity I received from Chuck Swindoll. Years ago, I was at a, a dinner. Uh, he was going to be making some kind of closing remarks at the dinner. It was being held at his church, Stonebriar Church up in Frisco. And uh, I was like looking for 
coordinates. I'd, I'd read some books by Chuck Swindoll. I'd certainly heard him speak on the radio, but I'd, I'd never actually had this particular experience. And so I, I positioned myself so I'd be right there by the podium. I'm the kind of guy that likes to like study and see everything. I want to see if he's sweating when he's talking and all this stuff and how he breathes. You know, so I'm right there. And lo and behold, after this wonderful dinner, he gets up there. There he is, the guy, Chuck Swindoll. You know, I've read enough to know that Life hasn't always been easy for Chuck Swindoll. Um, he had uh, been in the military, went to the Dallas Seminary, never actually went to college. They had to make a special kind of degree for him. His first senior pastor uh, coming out of seminary, he made it less than three years. Uh, he had, in, uh, growing up, uh, you may not know this, but he had a severe stuttering problem. And if you're going to be a pastor, that could be a challenge. And he had a severe stuttering problem. He credits his drama teacher, Dick Meany, as helping him really overcome this. And so he gets up and he says, you know, really all I want to do is I want to share with you what really changed my life. Um, what really changed it all for me. And I just want to kind of list out these kind of pursuits. And the first thing he said for me, and this is deeply personal, and I could tell as he started talking, he actually had tears in his eyes. Like, this isn't just a talk. This was from the heart. He said the first thing, and I discovered this about midlife, is that you have to know who you are. you got to know who you are. you got to know how you're wired, your strengths, your weaknesses, your temperament. You need to know your identity in Christ, just kind of like we saw here. That you're chosen of God, you're holy, you're dearly loved. You have to know who you are. The second, he said, and they said it took a while for me to get here, but not only do you have to know who you are, but you have to come to a place where you like who you are. Or maybe you need to use the word accept who you are. But what happens is that oftentimes people are always comparing themselves to others and how they rate compared to this individual or how they don't rate, right? And it's kind of this continual process where you're always at war with yourself. And, and there are a lot of people that actually kind of resent how they are. I wish I was like so-and-so. And, and they have this internal strife that's always existing in their life. He said, I had to come to a place where I could appreciate who I am. It's kind of like it says in Psalm 139 and verse 14, where David writes, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord, and my soul knows it very well. To come to a place where you can actually appreciate how God has made you. God gifted you, wired you, just the way you are, physically, emotionally, just who you are. So this was so very freeing for me. But then the third, though, this is really kind of what captured, uh, capsular, capsulized everything and really changed everything for me. Not only have to know who you are and like who you are, but you have to just be who you are. Stop trying to be somebody else. He said, for years, I tried to be like different people, and, and I tried to do it just the way I thought the seminary professors would want me to do it. And so he said, you know, I came to a place now that I'm going to actually preach a sermon like I feel like a sermon should be preached. I'm, I'm not going to be worried about these imaginary professors that aren't even sitting out there. You know, they're in your head, though. And I'm just going to preach a message the way I think it should be preached. And he said, I, I did it. I like it, it was meaningful to me, and the people seemed to really grow and appreciate it. And, and so, you know, I kept start doing that same direction. And then he said, you know, I decided I'd write a book. And I thought I'd write a book the way, a book like I would like to read. 
and he kept writing. Not only write one book, he's written over 70 books. And he said, friends, this changed it all. Know who you are, like who you are, just be who you are. Friends, that's what we need. We need to have a clear identity of who we are in Christ. To be able to move forward, you want a well-lived life? You have to have a clear identity. But notice as he's beginning this, he's giving us our clear identity in Christ, but then he's also calling us to a compassionate love. You see, you have to have a commitment not only to have a clear identity, but you have to have a commitment to having a compassionate love. Notice what he says. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, fruit is in keeping with the nature of the tree. You would fully expect that in an apple tree you would find pears, right? No. Are you guys wait? Okay. Of course you would. You're, an apple tree should produce apples, right? Same with bananas, same with pears. You see, what, when you and I have placed our faith in Christ, we are actually united with him. We literally are new creatures in Christ, and God intends for us to bear the fruit that comes by being united with Jesus Christ. And it's kind of like we talked about last week. Remember the maturity tree? And we talk about this frequently. When you and I place our faith in Christ, we are like a little sapling. Christ literally takes up residency in our life. And what takes place is that God intends for us to grow, that we're sinking roots into knowing God and his word. As we do, our character develops like the trunk of a tree, and we start branching out, shows up in our relationships, and our work, and how we see our ministry. And God bears fruit through our life because we're united with Christ and we're growing. Every parent, every parent wants their kids to grow up and mature, right? We want to send them out fully mature where they can function well in every aspect of life. God intends for you and I to mature, and this is what it looks like. We're sinking deep roots, and those roots are going to have like the equivalent structure above ground, and that is we've got character, and it's bearing much fruit. And so what we need if you're really going to have a well-lived life, we're going to need God to produce a compassionate love. And, you know, it's like this word love, it's such a misused word. It's underused and it's overused. Like, for instance, we love our car and we love our food and we love this pizza and you might love your dress and, and you love this program and you love this team. And we kind of know what you mean by that, like you, you like it, right? You have an affection for it. It makes you happy. But you need to know something about biblical love. We aren't designed to love inanimate objects. Objects are not capable of receiving or giving love. Only people are. And so when you talk about love from a biblical perspective... Love isn't a feeling so much as it is a commitment to a way of life. It's not so much a feeling as it is a commitment to a way of life. So you know at that wedding, and you got that groom up there, and he's kind of shaking, he's all pretty nervous there, and you got that bride, and she's just glowing, right? And the pastor's up there, and pretty safe as a pastor to go with like 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's a pretty safe love chapter, right? And the pastor starts saying, you know, like, well... Love is, what? Well, love is patient when you feel like it, you know? And he says, you know, well, love is, love is kind. When you feel like being kind, you should just go ahead and do it. Does he say that? No. Why? No, it's not actually based on your feelings. 
Love is a commitment of the will. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. If you think love is only a feeling, you're going to have chaotic relationships. They're always going to let you down because you're going to be letting people down. Love is actually a choice. If you want to know how to spell love, it's spelled G-I-V-E. What? How do you spell love? It's spelled G-I-V-E. You know, Philippians 2 says, you know, don't look after just your own interests. You're going to be fine. I'm not worried. I'm pretty sure your interests, you're going you're to get those met. But he says, you want to come to a place where you're looking out for the interests of others. It's a commitment. Whether or not the feelings are there. And so he says, I want you to put on love. As those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, notice what he says, put on. And this is really like the language of actually getting dressed, like putting clothing on. And we recognize people by the clothing they wear. So if you see someone running around in a lab coat, they may have escaped from a medical community, right? That might be a doctor or Pierre. You know, they got that lab coat on, right? Got the scope around the neck. I'm going to guess you're a doctor or a PA or something, right? You see someone dressed in a military uniform, and you make the assumption that, guess what? I think they're part of involved in our military. I've got a lot of respect for that gal or that guy. You need to understand, God intends for us to be known by the character that we wear. Remember what Mark Twain said? He said, a policeman in plain clothes is one man. In his uniform, he's ten. Why is that? That uniform conveys something of what he does and who he is. And that's what God intends. You see the text? He says, I want you to put on a heart of compassion. Now, you guys are all looking really good today, right? All dressed up. I'm going to guess that, that you were involved in the process of getting dressed. Did, did anybody just like, I was fully dressed by someone else today? No, of course not, right? You were involved in the process, weren't you? And so you are. You're putting on, you're asking God for wisdom, God for strength. God, would you put on compassion in my life? And so he says, put these things on. You know, in relationships, it's not enough for you just to refrain from doing things that are going to be upsetting or evil or not beneficial. Actually, you are called to engage, to be proactive, not passive, to engage, to do things that are going to be beneficial and helpful. And so he says, notice Put on a heart of compassion. This has the idea that you actually have sympathy for others. It's the opposite of insensitivity or callousness. He says, put on kindness. This has the idea that you treat people with honor and with respect. That you attribute value and dignity to another person. He says, put on humility. Humility isn't like servility, kind of just kind of, oh, woe is me. Uh, humility is that you've got a strength of character. It's the attitude of Christ, that you're no longer governed and driven by pride. And then there's notice what else he says, and gentleness. The word has the idea of power under control. Think of like an extremely strong horse that is well-trained. The horse is extremely powerful. It pretty much can do whatever it wants. But if it's a trained horse, why? I mean, it almost seems to know what the rider wants. There's a trust relationship between the rider and the horse. You just have to like nudge with your knee and they just kind of do what they need to do. And that's what, that's what he's talking about here about gentleness. It's power under control, under God's control.
And if you're, if you're a guy and you're like, I don't really want to be known as a gentle guy, that's a little weak. Uh, actually, just think about Jesus. Ultimate power, creator of the universe, total control. That's what gentleness looks like. Power under control. Another trait of gentleness is simply tact. And then notice what else he says, and patience. The Greek word is makrothumia. It, ha- it literally means long fuse, okay? That's the opposite of, like, impatient and short-tempered. Like, you know, the person, like, just immediately, if they don't get their way, if something's not quite right, what do they do? <laughs> you have a little explosion, right? And their whole life is just a series of, ah, oh, you made me mad, and they're raging, and, you know, they don't have a lot of friends, and they got, they're upset, and they've got ulcers and stuff, because they've, they've never learned about patience. They've never learned to be long-suffering, or to have a longer fuse. And so he says, put these things on, and notice what else he says in verse 13. Why do we have this kind of clothing, the clothing of Christ, that we're seeking Jesus to, to put on in our life? Because verse 13, we're to be bearing with one another. It has the idea that we hold up, that we stay in it. There's just something about us that we always want to move to the path of least resistance. And you'll see this in some people's lives. Difficulty comes, I'm going someplace else, don't want to work that hard. Trouble comes in a relationship. Ah, gotta go, this ain't working, right? This is difficult, this is going to require a little bit more than I want to give, because I don't really want to give a lot. I'm interested in receiving, keep coming my way, but I don't know about me trying so hard here. When he talks about in verse 13, bearing with one another, it has the idea that you're in it. You're not pulling out. You're not in retreat every time it gets difficult. And in your marriage and in your family and in our church, there are going to be times where there's going to be some relationships that are going to be a little rocky. So what are you going to do? Bail? Wait. No, what you want to do is like, Jesus, help me to put on this kind of character, to bear with one another. You're not in retreat all the time. You actually have relationships that last more than a year because you know how to bear with one another. And if you're really going to bear with one another, verse 13a, you've got to have the rest of this verse. Look at 13b. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. See, to forgive means to release someone from a debt, whether it's real or perceived. And it's It's the idea of removing any obstacle to a loving, respectful relationship. You've released them. So like if a bank forgives you of your debt, the bank assumes your financial cost, okay, and whatever you borrowed, they forgive you, meaning you're released because they're assuming all that. Well, that's what we do. Now we're called to forgive. Now, when we even talk about forgiveness, it's like, that is so unnatural. And you're right. Anytime you see forgiveness, you're seeing something supernatural. It's like the work of God in a person's life. You know, we, we don't really just want to get even, right, when someone's hurt us. We flat out want to get ahead. We want them to pay. We want them to suffer. You hurt me. I, I'll just show you who you're messing with. Kind of mentality. It was C.S. Lewis who said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it, right? Forgiveness, that's like one of the most noble uh, acts any human could ever do, until I have to do it, right? And then I'm not sure if I'm interested in that. God wants us to be forgiven.
forgiving. In fact, if you, if you can't learn how to forgive, to truly release people, what happens is it's like a cancer in your life. It's like a seed of bitterness. And it just starts defiling, and it just starts taking over. And if left untreated, it kind of brings a slow, miserable end to your life. And the reason that we don't forgive, oftentimes, is we don't feel like forgiving, and that's the problem. We're so often governed by our feelings rather than truth, rather than what God has revealed, what God is seeking to do in your life, supernatural. And notice what the text says. We're to forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. See, our model for forgiveness is Christ himself. If you're truly a Christian, like you truly are trusting in Christ, can I ask you, what sin or sins has Jesus not forgiven you of? Like, all this stuff here covered by Jesus, but... The few things that you did back then, <laughs> that's, that's not covered. Any, anybody have anything? That's right. Jesus said it was finished. Even the most heinous, horrendous things that you and I have said, did, thought, would, there's things like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. You know what I'm talking about? Forgiven. He canceled the debt. He took you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the beloved Son. He forgave you of all things. Even when you weren't even seeking it, he gave it. He offered himself. That pattern is the pattern of Christ. And he wants us not only to experience it, but to express it. Whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone. So why is forgiveness so important? Why, why did Jesus talk a lot about forgiveness? Why is it so emphasized in the Bible? Let me give you two reasons why. One, Forgiveness actually reflects God's character. We reflect the Father's love when we forgive. When we actually extend to others what's been extended to us, that act actually reflects God's character. You might think of it this way. God is exalted when forgiveness is displayed. Or you could think of it this way. The forgiven life is the forgiving life. The forgiven life is the forgiving life. You've been forgiven. God wants you to express that to others. You see, why is forgiveness so important? Well, it actually reflects God's character, but let me give you another. Forgiveness releases us. You ever taken your fist and just clenched it as hard as you can and just hold it there? Well, what happens is, is that it's like when we choose not to forgive, and maybe you want to do this with me because it is a very instructive lesson, you hold on and make that fist as tight as you can. Well, when we do that in our heart, when we choose not to forgive, and we're mad, and we're clenching our fist, it has a way of bitterness and resentment just kind of taking over our body. And, and it not only affects us physically, anger, upset, things aren't right, but it affects us emotionally. We're just not able to engage. We're much more of the short fuse than the long fuse. And actually, it even affects you spiritually. Your, your fellowship with God, the, the importance of, of prayer, and the sweetness of following Jesus, it, it seems to be diminished because you're just clinging on, and, and it hurts, and it, and it hurts more and more. My hand is turning white. And, and what God is calling you to do is release. And I've been doing this too hard. Okay, and, you, and what happens here, and it, it, 
feeling the way it's supposed to be, and then it's actually turning red again. No white, okay? And, and that's what forgiveness does, friend. It releases you. It releases you for so God's grace flows through your life. You're released from bitterness. That means, friend, this text means forgiving anyone. You may have to take the initiative. Don't wait for the person that hurt you to take the initiative. You might have to take the initiative. God did with you. And when it talks about forgiveness, that means you have to say, I am sorry for, will you forgive me for this? That also means that if you're if someone's presenting this to you, that you say, you're forgiven, or you're forgiven for this. Don't just blow it off. God wants us to exercise forgiveness in our relationships. If those words are not in your vocabulary, you've got some relationships that are pretty damaged, and you just have to look in the mirror to find out why. You haven't given forgiveness, and you haven't received it. You see, what we do is to follow the pattern of God. Do you know how God forgives? It's very fascinating to study how does God forgive. Like Hebrews 8.12, God writes, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The omniscient, all-knowing God, he knows everything about us. He knows about all of our sin, all of our transgressions, attitudes. Anytime we have lived a life apart from God, or at least try to, that's all sin. And he says, I will remember their sins no more. God chooses not to remember. He could, but he chooses not to. Why? He always sees us in his son, never in our sin. And that idea of choosing not to remember, that's really helpful every time it comes back, how that individual, these people, really hurt you. God wants us to live in the forgiving life. In fact, we all have a desire to live in forgiveness. Ernest Hemingway wrote a story about a father and a teenage son, and they had a real falling out. And teenage son thought, I'm running away. I'm leaving. And he did. And the father, heartbroken, tried to find his teenage son, rebellious, running around, can't seem to find him. Starts searching for him for, from city to city, trying to find him. Finally, he ends up in Madrid, Spain, and a last desperate attempt, he decides that, well, I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this, this little note in the newspaper. I think that's about all I can do. And so he put this ad in the paper and simply read this, quote, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Well, the next day, lunchtime, in front of the newspaper office, there wasn't a single Paco there, not one. There were 800 Pacos. And they all came to experience the forgiveness of their father and to know his love. And I tell you this, friends, because we need to know this kind of forgiveness. There are people in your life that need to hear it from you. You need to experience it. You need to express it. And when we forgive, it's not like, okay, I get it, Grant. I'm going to bury the hatchet, but I'm going to keep the handle, you know, sticking on the ground. If I grab it any time, like, oh, yeah, I remember when you hurt me like that. No, no. It's, friends, it's not remember the Alamo in your relationships all the time, Right? No, I'm going to choose not to remember. God, I'm, I'm seeking you. I want to live in forgiveness. Why? Because guys and gals, if you want to live a significant life, a life that leaves a great legacy, a well-built life, you've got to have a compassionate love. That's why he says in verse 14, beyond all these things put on what? Love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The love here is an agape love it's a love that is actually a choice. It does what is in the best interest of another individual.
individual. Whether or not it's reciprocated or even appreciated, it is a choice. I choose to love you. It's not based on feelings. It's based on decision. I'm going to love you. That's the kind of love that God has for us. We're squirrely. We're sinful. We're out doing our own program, but God chooses to love us. How overwhelming is that? And God wants us to learn how to love like that. Not based on your feelings. Feelings come and go. Based on choice, God, in your strength, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to love my spouse. I'm going to love my kids. I'm going to love my neighbors. John wrote this in 1 John 419. He says, we love because he first loved us. Isn't that good? Want to have that kind of love? Well, we experience it from him. But you know what the very next verse, this is what he says. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Well, don't mince any words, huh? You think, oh, you're a big lover of God, but you're hating folks? John says, I got news for you. You're a liar. You see, the reason is, for the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. See, love is like a glue that holds us together. It's like oil that keeps us from rubbing each other the wrong way. And there is no environment like marriage and family that really shows us our need for these kind of characteristics. It shows us like a mirror. You know, when you look in a mirror and you're like, hey, there's some food on my shirt. I'm like, oh, what did I get my buttons wrong here? No way. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I got toothache on my face. That's why they're all laughing all day. Why didn't someone tell me? But you look in the mirror and you see. That's what marriage and family does. We see our need for Christ, our need for growth. It becomes quite evident that I'm quite inadequate. In these relationships, God, help me. Create and cultivate these kind of characteristics in my life. And, you know, I've heard, I was giving a talk and I uh, interviewed a bunch of women because I wanted to have to address this subject. And these ladies were very insightful and very open. And they said, you know, we've heard of women who think, and they say this, like, I have to love my kids, but my husband is optional. What? And some of you guys are like, hey, what? Who said that? My husband is optional. I got half to love my kids, and my husband's optional. Or there are guys that think like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with this as long as this makes me happy, or helps me accomplish my personal or career goal. And it's that kind of mindset. What we want to do, friends, is we want to learn to love as God has called us to love, and we can in Christ. You want to make sure you avoid the very spiritually dangerous question: Did I marry the right person? Ann Tyler has a novel called A Patchwork Planet. And uh, in this book, the, the narrator is a 32-year-old guy. Uh, he's actually left and divorced his wife. And he finds himself working in a field where he's working predominantly with older people, um, older singles, and some who are older and, and married. And he's watching these relationships. And he makes these statements. I'll just read you a quote from this book. I was beginning to suspect that it made no difference whether they married the right person. Finally, you're just with who you're with. You sign on with her, put in a half century with her, grown to know her as well as you know yourself, or even better, and she's become the right person, or the only person might be more to the point. I wish someone had told me that earlier. I'd have hung on then, I swear I would, I never would have driven Natalie to leave me. I want to tell you something about relationships. 
Relationships are designed for much more than your happiness. They are designed for God's glory and for your holiness. Much more than your happiness. Relationships can bring a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. But they're for much more than that. They're meant to honor and glorify God, even the tough ones and in the difficult times. And they're meant to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus. You see, our goal isn't to have perfect relationships. Our goal is to have healthy relationships. That you respond to the trials and the tribulations and the struggles and the obstacles of life. That you do it, you make it together. And yeah, sometimes it's not pretty, but you're in it. You haven't given up. You're not forsaking. You're moving forward. You know, a thriving family isn't something you find. It's something you work toward. John Wooden, age 99, shortly before his death, kind of the ultimate coach, right? He said this, Truly, truly, truly love. That's the most powerful thing there is. The essence of coaching well and living well is loving well. Friends, do you want a well-built life? Do you want to make the most of the life God's given you? Do you want to have a clear identity? Do you want to have a compassionate love? And notice how this passage ends. Do you want to have a compelling faith? Look at this. Verse 15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ, where is it dwelling? In your heart. Outside, it may be chaotic. You may have all sorts of problems and all sorts of troubles, but if you know Jesus, peace comes from knowing God. God gives you his peace in your life, even if there's turmoil around and there's difficulties, you can have peace because you have Jesus. And he's with you, and he'll not forsake you, and he will never leave you. And what he wants you to do is experience peace, and I'll tell you why the Christian can experience peace in the midst of chaos. Because Jesus has dealt with what keeps peace from being reality, and that's sin. He's paid for it. He's satisfied it. He satisfies the debt, and he offers you peace. Peace with God, peace with God, peace of God. It comes from him. Remember when Peter, Jesus called him to get out of the boat and walk on the water? And Peter was doing great until he actually looked at the water and like, Whoa, I'm walking on water. Oh, that's not possible. And he starts sinking, right? And he's freaking out and flailing and going to drown. And Jesus picks him up and puts him back in the boat. Friends, that's how our life is. We do actually pretty well in some really difficult circumstances. We walk and live by faith. But when you just get focused and fixed on your circumstances, that's when you start sinking. And that's why God's saying, look at me. Focus on Jesus. And then he says, verse 16, let me tell you how you grow rich and deep in Christ. Let the word of God richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What he's saying is let the word of God be woven into your way of life. You want not to be just a superficial Christian, but a deeper one, which means that you're in the Word as God is teaching you. And the idea of having psalms, literally the psalms of praise to God and hymns, which are actually praising God, and spiritual psalms has the idea that you're experiencing God's faithfulness and you put it to like heart. It's like internally, it's a song to God. You're thanking Him and you're filled with joy and peace because God's Word is having its effect in your life. I remember a, a guy by the name of Roger Morris um, years ago. I was a young guy out of college. 
this guy was impressive. Uh, he was a leader in our church. Um, he was kind of a leader in the community. And he was just like one of those guys like, man, I hope I end up like half like what you are. And I, I asked him, just a young guy coming out of college, if I could have lunch with him. This dentist, he trained other dentists. And he said, sure, bring your staff lunch. You told me time, where to show up. And so I did. And I'm kind of curious, like, so do you guys really floss your teeth and brush and things like that? You know? So I'm, I'm watching. They're reading our staff lunch. And I said, hey, Roger, how is it that you kind of, you ended up like this, you know? And he's like, well, for me, it really changed when I actually started taking the study of the Word of God seriously. I went from superficial. I got a lot deeper when I got into this book. That's really good news. That's what God wants. He wants you to have a compelling faith. That's a growing faith, and it comes from being in His Word. And finally, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. In biblical times, to do something in the name of someone was to do as an extension or an expression of an individual. And that's what God intends. Our lives are an expression to this world of what it means to know Jesus. That's everything we do. Word, deed, we're doing it in the name of Jesus. So friends, we're building to build lives. And I know it's graduation Sunday. And friends, if I have one shot to tell you how to have a well-lived life, this would be my text. You want to have a clear identity. You want to have a compassionate love, friends, that will make your relationship so much more rewarding and richer. And do you want to have a compelling faith? Your faith in Jesus makes all the difference. You'll get a glow. You'll radiate because you have the strength of Christ propelling you forward. In the Washington State's northern Cascades, uh, we've got these forests that uh, have trees that are literally hundreds of years old. Usually in forest trees, they only make it like 50 to 60 years because lightning strikes and things are dry and things all burn up. And it's actually a part of the natural process. But in the northern Cascades, it's not uncommon to find trees that are 300, 400 years old. One particular tree is over 700 years old. The National Forest Service put a plaque on it because it's like, this tree made the distance. The reason the trees grow so old in the Cascades like that is because it's always raining. Always raining. They're just drenched with rain. And so when lightning, if it did strike, it didn't have a lot of place to go because everything's wet, right? That's why people have like webbed toes and stuff out there. That's why it's the Oregon ducks, okay? It all makes sense when you live there. And so these trees grow so long and they don't seem to die because they're so well nourished and they live with all this water around them all the time. Friends, I tell you that because in your life, your marriage, your family, church, Lightning's going to strike sometimes. There's going to be temptation of all sorts, sexual temptation. There are going to be communication problems, frustrations, unrealized expectations. If you're not just well-watered with God's grace and His Word, man, lightning strikes and you're going to have fire on your hands. We're going to have trouble. If we're well-watered with the grace of Jesus and we're in His Word, we have a clear identity and we're growing in a compassionate love and we've got a compelling faith, friends, we're going to do well. And I will tell you this. The life we live determines the legacy we leave. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. God, if there is anyone in this room who's never truly trusted Christ, would they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin, and today I believe in Jesus. And I ask, Lord, that not only would I know forgiveness of sins, but I'd know the newness of life, life walking with you. And God, for all of us, May we make the most of the days that you've given us. 
Would you shape in us a clear identity of who we are in Christ, a compassionate love? And God, may we have a compelling faith, a faith in Christ. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name.